Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. And people would come to us. This was one of the other advantages. Certainly was not anything that we had planned on. But one of the advantages about getting fruit from Oregon all the way down to Santa Barbara was that people who were interested in Pinot Noir, interested in winemaking, could have a much more varied experience making wine. I mean, in working in the cellar at our place Mm -hmm. um, than in other places. Um, That was... um, that was a great experience for people. Honestly, I should mention this real quick too. Our first two employees, a guy named Scott Shapley. Scott is the winemaker at Roar Winery right now. Oh. Scott was our first employee. And our second employee was a guy named Ryan Sepultas, who's the winemaker at Copan Winery. Yeah. So um, yeah, those, but they got a lot of experience by working at Siduri with Oregon fruit, with um Sonoma Coast, Russian River, Sonoma Mountain, San Lucia, Santa Rita. Um, it really opened up a lot of doors uh, of experience for people. It's such a great kind of cross-pollination, like what you described, is 70 harvest packed into, you know, a dozen years or whatever. I, I think that's so instructive for honing a skill set. And by the way, everybody that I've ever spoken to when your guys' names came up, the first thing that just came out in millisecond is they're good people. I can think of two or three people that would probably call me an ass, but you know, I actually 26 years in the wine business. If you can name them on one hand or even two hands, it's not all that bad. That's pretty cool. No, the overwhelming course is that you're just the best. And being good humans, I think, is the title that's arguably the most important one. Sure. That's my, my 21-year-old son who's doing very well, about to graduate college or in a little less than a year and all of that. But one of the things I'm most proud about, truly am, is that he's just a great guy. I like to talk to him on the phone. I like to Zoom with him. I like that kind of thing. That's, you know... He struggled for the first year and a half in college, and now he's kind of been kicking ass and doing well. It took him a little while to figure it out. Happens to all of us in life at some point in time. But he's a good guy, really good guy, and I like that. There's no better than that for dad. Oh, yeah. You're a good human, you know, that they're going to contribute. They're the future, literally. So they're going to spread the goodness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which we all need at all times. Not just now. Make up for some of the stuff we screwed up in a certain generation. (laughs) Maybe they can figure it out better than we did. So no, it's awesome. Congratulations on that. Um, So you you've raised this baby called Sidori, um, and it was flourishing. I mean, so great ratings, so many accolades, so much love, so much hard work, and you were faced with the decision of. Yeah, and it's funny how it came about in some ways. It wasn't anything really planned as far as selling it. I, I did know that we had gotten to the point that it felt like, although technically we were running Sideri, it felt like Sideri was running us. It had gotten mm-hmm. to that size. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I, I had a, a friend, uh, some friends who worked at a winery they called us up. They were looking for some advice on um, 
they, they were thinking about starting another label and they wanted some advice on brokers in California. And I told them what I knew and said, we don't use any of these brokers, but these are the ones I'm familiar with. These are the ones I like. And then I threw out this line, if Diane and I were ever to sell and start over again, these are the brokers we would consider. So a couple of days later, they called back and they said, you mentioned if you were ever to sell, would you ever consider that? And I'm like, eh. I mean, we talk to anybody kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a fairly large winery that we knew the people there well. And so that started a whole conversation about um, the idea of selling um, the winery with these people. And it didn't work out with them, but we did a lot of the groundwork, a lot of the work there, figured out what was involved, and even got a good friend of ours involved, uh, Mario Zapponi. Uh, he has Zapponi and Company, which they broker and sell wineries, and we got him involved. But then Harvest was coming along. We didn't need to sell. We had no plans to do so. We said, we're not going to do it. Um, screw it. We were finished. Uh, and Mario was a little frustrated, I think, and said, you know, we've gotten up to this point. And I'm like, it's Harvest. We can't. So he called us at the end of October and said, Adam, would you all now consider it? You've done all this work. And my response to Mario was, if it doesn't require any more work on my part, sure, go ahead and show it to some people. And he said, it will require no more work on your part unless people are interested. Then we're going to need to update some things and all of that. And it turned out we had five or six people that were very, very interested, five or six wineries. And so um, there was definitely a little bit of this bidding going on between them, this and this. And um, we ended up selling to, oddly enough, the second highest offer, which was Jackson. It was why, not the highest. Why second? Um, because Barbara and the kids came over to the winery late one night because we were um, trying to like do it under cloak of darkness in case things didn't work out and they came <laughs> and they tasted and we talked and it was a family atmosphere that you got to know. You could talk to Barbara and Chris and Julia and Ari. You can talk to the people that were um, uh, in Katie. They were all part of the that family and we were a family and they seemed to really respect that tremendously and so that is why we ended up deciding to sell to Jackson. You know, when people think of Kendall Jackson, given their size, they don't necessarily think in familial terms, but what you're describing is very different, very heartfelt. So I give you one story. I had sold, uh, we were a year after selling the winery, uh, maybe a year and a half and uh, going to London to do a, a show for some of the wines. And um, right before I left, uh, I discovered that it was entirely possible I might have prostate cancer, which it turned out I did. Um, and over there, we're drinking one night and it comes out about this because I share things pretty openly. And Barbara arranges for me because of some connections he has to go to the Mayo Clinic uh, on her paying for the trip, pay for any of the things um, necessary um, to make sure that I was taken care of and given all their advice and options and the best possible things. Stuff like that is what went on, goes on amongst the family there at Jackson. And it's the type of thing that, um, you know, if ever you doubt your decision on selling the winery, when somebody like that, uh, 
treats you in that way, you, all of a sudden you realize you made the right decision. So first of all, are you okay? Yes, I actually, I went through a new treatment called HIFU, high intensity focused ultrasound. That was a one day treatment and it took care of it completely. It's, it's an amazing new thing. It wasn't approved in the United States yet, but um, at the time it was, that's been three years ago now and I'm in great shape. I just dropped off wine with the doctor that did that for me because he's retiring. So I had to go drop him off some wine because the guy, uh, Dr. Michael Lazar, he literally saved my life in some ways, so. It's such an extraordinary story. Thank you for sharing it, wow. It makes all the sense in the world uh, in that context. And you know, that just shows you that when you look at a store shelf and see a bottle of KJ, you just assume things that they're this big, you know, nameless, whatever, faceless corporation, and it couldn't be further from the truth. So don't ever make assumptions is a lesson there. Yep. Um, are you still involved with Sidori? I am. Uh, so we've hired a new winemaker, a guy named Matt. Uh, Matt is a background at William Selliam, Costa Brown, and Sojourn. So um, pretty, uh -huh. yeah. Uh, he was a philosophy major in college from Kentucky. So um, about as useless as my French history <laughs> in some ways. Um, yes ended up going uh, back to school and studying it. So he's uh, far smarter in that regard than, than I am. But Matt and I have become great, great friends. We interviewed a lot of people. Matt is one of my, my best friends in the business uh, now. Um, so this is his first harvest this year um, on his own, although I still consult for Siduri and I consult for all of Jackson family in some ways on Pinot Noir right now. So I am um, they've, they've kept me on now, um, six, almost six years after selling. So pretty, um, pretty amazing. What a beautiful relationship. Oh yeah. Um, so of course, just cause you were still very busy doing all the consulting work and I'm sure public speaking, you know, all kinds of, you know, connections to other winemakers. Cause it's, it really is a community. It, it, it never is. stops. You decided to launch your own brand. So that was a funny thing. So I, um, I did, you know, sometimes you question how smart is that again, because you got enough stuff going on. So why do I want to start something else? Um, and it's interesting. I went to, to Jackson and talked to him about that. And, and they, I technically, I mean, I had a non-compete. They, they knew I consulted for a couple people. They were fine with that. Mm -hmm. um, but my goal on starting this, this other winery, Clarice Wine Company, was to do four acres worth of fruit. Two acres at the Rosella's Vineyard, two acres at the Gary's Vineyard, leave it at that. Um, and they were like, this is fantastic, Adam. I mean, you know, you do that, you do things differently there. Um, that's only gonna help with Siduri. And, you know, as long as you're associated with Jackson, you're associated with both, that's not a problem. They asked that, you know, we don't want you to consult, if you don't mind, with some really large wineries that could be in more direct competition. But with this, they were very, very happy to let me do it. So that's where I, um, that's how the mechanics of the Clarice thing worked out. The heart of it comes down to uh, a couple of things. First off, as I mentioned before, Siduri in some ways was running me more than I was running Siduri. And I had discovered that over time that there were a couple of things I really wanted to change winemaking wise. And I could have introduced them at Siduri, but it would have changed what people had this perception. Siduri had become both a successful winery, but to some extent a brand 
as well. Mm-hmm. And people had a perception of it in a certain way. And I felt like I wanted to do some things differently. Most notably of which is um, Clarice was my grandmother. Uh, she was born in 1896 uh, in a small town called Giddings, Texas. And um, we, she taught me to cook in a crock pot. She used to cook for my grandfather, who was a dairy farmer, in a pot, uh, a large pot. And she wasn't sure when he was going to come home, around sunset sometime. But she used to tell me that you could put in the meat, the potatoes, the carrots, the broth, all the seasoning, cook them over a long period of time, and they would integrate and make almost like a seamless tasting dish. Any spices that you added at the end really stood out. So what I thought about doing at the Gary's Vineyard and Rosella's Vineyards were I took two sections that were very different in each vineyard, one from the other, different clones, different rootstocks, different parts of the vineyard. They would normally ripen two weeks apart. And instead of picking them when each section was individually ripe, I combined them together. So I took the two sections at Rosella's, different clones, different parts of the vineyard, and I sampled them together as if they were one and picked them together as if they were one. Same thing at the Gary's Vineyard. And so the idea there is the whole was ready, but it's made up of some parts that are riper than you might want and some parts that are less ripe than you might want. But hopefully you make a more complex wine by blending those sections together rather than taking each section when it's absolutely perfectly ripe. That's Absolutely fascinating. So this this amalgam that you created, it's almost like reverse engineering a little bit. And, you know, it reminds me of people, what people do in the cellar when they identify the barrels that would yeah. then, you know, really complete each other's, you know, flavor profile. But you did it in the vineyards. It's partially because I've got some good friends like Mike Officer at Carlisle Winery and Jay Bilbro at Limerick Lane to deal with old vine Zinfandel. And you had the old field blends. Yeah, where, where growers would plant certain things and they would plant Petit Sirein with a Zen so they could give it some more color or they would plant the Carignan or the whatever things. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of a purposeful field blend, but in California, we really don't have much in the way of field blends of Pinot Noir. And so this was that idea in some ways, but, but with a going into it with this plan and, and creating it in that way. The idea was that the total is so much greater than some of its parts when it all marries together. Sure. And, and there's certain spices in your cabinet there at home. I'm sure yeah. you're like, by itself, I'm not going to want to eat a lot of this spice. But in this yeah. dish, it's going to bring extra character, unique things to it. Same way, I think, um, in making this, making my Clarice wines that way. So it's experimental, which... I know it has to ha- hold a tremendous appeal because deep down you're this alchemist, right? Every winemaker is, every, every great winemaker is, I should say. But also I'm so impressed that after all this, you know, accolades and really um, being in many ways the frame of reference for California Pinot Noir, which is a powerful place to be, you decided to kind of go and pursue something that didn't have any history to speak of. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that has concerned me about California Pinot Noir, concerned me about me, and concerned me about Pinot Noir in general was that, I mean, there's always the the line that sideways killed Merlot, um, uh, which is not completely true, but I think it might have killed Merlot quickly 
but it might be killing Pinot Noir slowly. Uh, it became, um, Pinot Noir for a number of wineries became something that was not necessarily their passion, but something they felt like they had to have as part of their portfolio. And it became more of a, um, just a need. We needed to have a Pinot is part of what we do, this or that. It mm -hmm. became much more of a commodity, Pinot Noir did, at some yeah. point along the way. And I think even I fell a bit into that mentality at some points in time where I'm like, okay, Pinot has become so successful um, that, what did they say, success breeds contempt? Well, I didn't have the actual contempt for Pinot Noir, obviously, but it, it was like I was not uh, sometimes as engaged. And so I needed to rethink things, rethink Pinot Noir, rediscover that passion and try taking things in different directions. Wow, that makes so much sense. And the fact that you've challenged yourself yet again, when you could have really rested on your laurels and, a, you know, a great argument could be made that you've earned your, your keep, so to speak, that you could actually go do something else. I don't know, be on an island with an umbrella drink or whatever you wanted. I can uh, do that every now and then. That sounds really good. <laughs> times of COVID, boy, that sounds really good, doesn't it? I know. All of a sudden, I found myself, you know, wanting... Um, but going back to the vineyard, again, it's hard work, it's agony, it's logistics, it's all the stuff that you've done already and been through. And you chose deliberately that pathway and honoring your grandma, my God, what a, what a beautiful sentiment. Remember, again, I mentioned to you guys in the beginning of the conversation, if you have a grandma um, and she occupies a special place in your heart, like a lot of us, what a powerful connection. Well, th there's another part of that that I love too, which was... Um, she, for me, she was always just a grandma. I mean, she was a great grandma. She'd sit on the floor with me and watch TV. We'd go out and shoot baskets and she would actually shoot granny style, you know, underhand free throws, that kind of thing. After she passed away, I learned from my mom that um, while in Giddings, Texas, she was 15 years old and she was engaged to the son of the pharmacist in town who was like three, four years older than she was. But um, their family was poor. The son of the pharmacist would have been this huge move up in society in Giddings, Texas, but she fell in love with a dairy farmer and they would leave notes for each other down by the creek under a rock. And two days before her 16th birthday, she was supposed to get married very shortly after her 16th birthday, two days before her 16th birthday on a Saturday, um, they eloped. They ran away horse and buggy to Dimebox, Texas. They got chased after by her brothers and dad uh, it started raining and that uh, meant that they couldn't catch up to them. So the next day on Sunday, um, Diana's brothers went to her dad and said, do we go back and get Clarice? And her dad said, no, she's ruined by now anyhow. So don't get her. And my grandparents were married 67 years with three children, multiple grandchildren, uh, including me. Um, and so taking that chance um, and learning about that always had this great, great appeal to me. Um, and I think it's been an inspiration in some ways to in starting Siduri and starting Clarice as well. What an extraordinary story. Her spirit lives in you. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, she wasn't, she wasn't a drinker either. And I remember I asked my mom one time if, if, uh, how she would feel about it, having a wine label uh, 
named after it. And I was undoubtedly spoiled being an only child. Um, and uh, my mom said, well, if granny knew you were doing it, she would have been okay with it. So, you know, I was one of those, I was definitely a spoiled grandkid in a lot of ways. Well, um, that may be, but you also took such powerful life lessons and externalized them. Yeah. You know, as evidenced by your life's work. And by the way, a long marriage. You and Diana has been married for how long now? 25 years, yeah. 25 years. That's something to celebrate right there. Um, what a beautiful life partner. And you've been through so much together. And she's also a wine because she has her own brand, correct? She has her own brand called Flaunt, doing sparkling wine. And uh, now just releasing her first uh, Pinots under her label from uh, Vineyard uh, Jim Pratt's Vineyard on Sexton Road. So a fairly well-known place that we dealt with, but out near Occidental. So Wow, how exciting. Beautiful, busy lady. And you have a couple other brands I just learned I do have two oh. other things that I'm doing, which are kind of fun. Um, one of them is called Beaumarche. Beaumarche is brand new. 2019 is the first vintage. Um, this it comes from the Sobranus Vineyard in the Santa Lucia Highlands. Yeah. And it also comes from the Clopepe Vineyard down in the Santa Rita Hills. Mm -hmm. And this is a joint venture that I am doing with one of the most famed French winemakers, uh, Philippe Camby. Uh, Philippe is the master of Grenache, he consults with 60-ish wineries in Chateauneuf de Pop, 82 wineries around the world, um, Priorat, Macedonia, um, in the States here, he works with um, Manfred Crankle down at yeah, mm -hmm. Um works uh, with Justin Smith at Saxum, I mean, and I was over in Chateauneuf a couple of years ago and was fortunate enough to have dinner with Philippe at his house. He's very, very um, engaging, welcoming guy. And he um, mentioned that he had always dreamed of making Pinot Noir. And I thought that was, was fascinating. And it was fascinating to me, not just because he, uh, it was Pinot, but he didn't say, I always thought I would do it well or I always thought I'd make money doing it, or this or that, it was I've always dreamed of making Pinot Noir. And that really appealed to me, that wording, that spirit. And um, so when I got back, of course, I thanked him. I sent an email thanking him for the dinner and, and the hospitality. And I brought that up and said, is that true? And he's like, yes, you know, here in Chateauneuf, we call Grenache the Pinot Noir of Chateauneuf, given all the different uh, great. And so I've always dreamed of doing it. I'm like, would you consider making Pinot with me? So we've started this project together. I am making Pinot Noir largely according to Philippe's direction. I mean, I we're doing it together. So he said, you know, Adam, if things are getting awry or whatever, you're the one checking on things, let me know. He comes to the States three times a year. Uh, we taste blends, go to the vineyards, that kind of thing. But um, it is a completely different way of making Pinot than I've ever considered before, much more like he makes Grenache in Chateauneuf. And so making Pinot in that way, to me, is also a, um, a really fascinating thing. Um, because then it's, Clarice was me looking at Pinot in a different way. This also is me looking at Pinot through someone else's eyes and learning from a very, very famed winemaker about a different way of making Pinot Noir as well. Serendipity strikes again. Yes. What are the odds of you winding up in his house and all of a sudden he mentioning that? 
Yeah, no, it was not like with 82 clients, he has, you know, much time or, you know, sine qua non. Wow. Yeah. 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 That's quite something. You seem to attract this energy that's quite extraordinary. Philippe is just one of these guys that is um, both a, a, an incredible winemaker. He, he started making wine three years after I did. And so we were joking about it. I'm like, ah, Philippe, I actually have more experience winemaking than you did. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, that's true. You do, Adam, fine and all of that. Um, and I'm like, well, how were the first wines received? He said, well, my first three wines received 100 from Robert Parker. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so, but I mean, he wasn't doing it in, a, in a bragging way. He, we were giving each other a fun, friendly, back and forth kind of thing. He is... Um, uh, my mom, uh, Clarice's daughter, passed away on Valentine's Day this year, um, 98, almost 99, mm. not, uh, lived a great life and all of that. Um, during COVID, Philippe's mom, lives by herself in, south of, of Chateauneuf, uh, fell, broke her arm. Um, he managed to make it down there to see her, but was very concerned about doing so because of COVID and, you know, an older parent and that kind of thing. Yeah. He and I spent so much time talking back and forth about the joys and challenges of older parents, of being in touch with them, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, what part of the point is obviously the wine, but a greater point is this ability to learn more about each other, to have more experiences, people, that kind of thing with one another also. Wow, what a beautiful story. And, um, you know, you guys get to partake at, uh, I'm assuming it's commercially available. Is that a correct it's assumption? It's being released, it bottled in August. We're releasing it in October, so. So there's a website, right? That it, we it is, it's, uh, it's Beaumarchais Wine. And um, Beaumarchais is an interesting story too. The guy on the label is Pierre Beaumarchais. Pierre Beaumarchais, okay. famous in um, history for a couple of things. He wrote The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, and amongst other things, he was a, a, he did so many different things. He was a watchmaker, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but he started up a company, a fake company uh, in Paris that funneled money from Spain and France, money and arms to the Americans to support the American revolution against England. So um, the idea of having a, a Frenchman help an American endeavor How was something that? that tied into what we were doing. And so that's where we came up with the name. That is, how did you even know all this backstory? I mean, people are familiar with Figaro, but beyond it, how did you? Um, you know, was looking around at different things. I'm trying to remember where that one came about. Being a history major actually has paid off for me uh -huh. in other that's ways. Um, but that just turned out to be, and, and in, Loosely translated, it means beauty walking. Beaumarchais does. Um, so that also seemed like an appropriate way. Yeah. And who designed the label? Because it looks uh, pretty cool. It, it was, it was uh, a friend of ours, Patrick, uh, who is does some design and artwork. And we gave him some concepts. And he sent us over some different ideas and kind of went went from there. So well, I can't wait. Um, I really am dying to try it for so many reasons. And then I have one other one too that I've got yes. with John Wagner, who owns the John Sebastiano Vineyard down yeah. in Santa Barbara County. Um, we decided that it's really important. I mean, 
Beaumarche, Clarisse are, are relatively expensive. Uh, he owns Peak Ranch Winery, wonderful wines, great values in some ways, but also not higher end. We decided we wanted to come out with something a little lower priced, <laughs> fun wine. So Babs for Barbara, Santa Barbara. Sure. Short, a more fun expression of Pinot Noir in the $25 kind of price yeah. range. Um, we think it's really important that people still have the opportunity to taste real Pinot Noir. This is something that's going to be very interesting, as, as you know, as much as anybody does. There's a, a, an abundance, perhaps an overabundance of Pinot Noir out in the market now. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see a lot of labels that are coming out that are people buying bulk wine and combining things together and, and doing that. These are all from estate grapes mm -hmm. made by John and myself together. Um, and creating a wine that we think is a fun, fruit-filled, enjoyable expression of Pinot Noir at a price that people can say, hey, it's a Monday night. It's Monday as we're doing this interview right now. It's a Monday night. Right. Let me pop open a bottle of this Pinot Noir and watch Monday night football if you want or whatever you want to do. I mean, that's it's something there that I think as Pinot became more and more popular, those wines uh, became less and less, particularly for that hands-on nature of it. Again, that loyalty to the consumer, you're honoring the palates and their wallets by producing something that's obviously delicious, N nothing you've ever made hasn't been, so why would you start now? So I know it's a great bottle of wine and also making it approachable because, you know, during current economic times, you need to be mindful of that. And we know statistically people are drinking more, but they can only afford to stretch their dollar so far. So kudos to you for acknowledging that. I think that's extraordinarily important. I mean, one of the things um, in this, and in, in not to be a downer, but we've, I've fortunately made it through economically challenging times in the wine business and been able to do that. But I don't recall a time where restaurants truly shut down, where things occurred yeah. in this particular level, in this particular way. And I think um, more than ever, it's important to have some wines at that very fair price point out there um, right now, because these are somewhat unprecedented times for all of us. Those are truly humbling times. And if there's one thing that clearly, um, you know, stands out, you know, highlighting it for this moment is the fact that you've always had this extraordinary humility about you, regardless of your accomplishments or, you know, the, the breadth of your career and the reach, you know, worldwide of the brand that you built um, and the value you created and the jobs you created and all of those things. Um, and I think now all of us are being put on notice about what's happening around us, that we need to be humble and thoughtful, yep. kinder to each other. Very much so. We need to take care of each other in a way. I mean, quite frankly, we needed to take care of ourselves even before this realization came along. It's just the realization that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. So special shout out for people that get it. I think a lot of us are so mired in, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves and it's often warranted. Yeah. But it's really kind of taking a bit of a helicopter view and looking at it as an event where the best will shine the brightest and the worst will probably be exposed that much more. During these these times, I mean, particularly right after COVID came out and spending a lot of time indoors, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you, you talk to your friends and you say, hey, how are you doing? And that was just almost a throwaway line. You didn't like, I mean, you of course kind of cared and all of that. You were being nice yeah. and all that. Mm -hmm. But it took on new meaning when I'm like, how are you doing? You mm -hmm. really wanted to know the answer. and. 
every person I know had good days and bad days. They did good things and they did not so good things. And they, they were challenged during the, these times. Um, I really took it on myself to try to do some different things. So I got on the, the Peloton. I rode for 100 plus straight days, uh, which was wow. good. Um, ended up losing another 20-ish pounds, which was good. I wrote uh, four plays. I used to do playwriting in college, so I've written four plays, one of which is actually being published by Barnes & Noble called Not oh. Enough Time. Oh my God, uh, congratulations. I shall look it up immediately. Thank you. So um, there have been a number of things like that, that it's stuff I took in college. I was history major, I mentioned, but also English. And I took playwriting and I had not finished a play since that time. And um, I really was talking to my therapist because I have a therapist that helps me a lot with things. And I'm like, I really want to finish a play. It might suck, but I want to at least finish one. And um, that was a goal that I set for myself during these times. Talk about inspiration. I mean, the fact that you can do it at any time. The fact that you are now finishing the project that you started. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a you know. Yeah, it's a, a neat um, neat thing for me. I mean, whether or not it's amazingly worthwhile. Um, part of it was reading and reading about uh, Pierre Beaumarchais in *The Marriage of Figaro*. And um, what's funny is it's a four-act play. It was a five-act play. Uh, and when it first premiered, um, the audience reception was less than kind. And so he went and rewrote the whole thing in like 12 days, taking out an entire act, the whole thing, and redoing it at that time. Um, so those kinds of processes were inspiration to me during, and then the, the, whole, uh, the whole COVID being stuck in your house type situation. You know, you just said something so interesting. We talked about reaching out in a real way to people around you that you perhaps didn't have just, you know, bandwidth, you know, because you were so stretched, not that you didn't want to. But it's also getting to know yourself. Yep. I mean, that's the one person that I think gets forsaken the most because we take care of others, right? Very so much. Very much. I think that's very true. And it is something I always heard the story of. It is the one person that you wake up with every single day is yourself. The only one that's guaranteed that you're going to be there with. And yeah. you need to spend some time taking care of that person, but cultivating that person and, and deciding at times uh, this is, here's more of who I want to be. Let me try to push myself in that direction. Here's some of what I do that is not who I want to be right now. Let me find a way to, to change that or to overcome that. Maybe forgive yourself for being that person sometimes, but that doesn't mean you still can't change and, and be better than that. Give yourself permission to have an honest discussion with yourself, which is kind yeah. of a big deal, isn't it? Oh yeah, it is. It's, it's a very big thing and can be very enlightening and very challenging and very humbling and occasionally will bring you to your knees, but it's okay. It's, it's a process that I think makes for the quality of life, like real acknowledgement of the gift we were given because we're alive, we're vertical, yep. we're talking to each other. This is a way of honoring it, you know, honoring you and really what you could become as a result of this discussion. It's exciting. I mean, scary as all get out. The sure. exciting part is that, you know, that unexplored piece of you could be the best part. 
It can. Yes, it could definitely be the best part, but you have to open yourself up to the fact that there are going to maybe some things in there that aren't the best parts. And, you know, you have to learn to accept or change or, um, I don't know, embrace, but just realize that, yes, these are things that I need to be better at or I want to be better at. Well, there's inspiration overflowing, you guys. You can grab a bottle of one of Adam's wines and have a good sit down with yourself and have a that good would, talk. I would be delighted to. Uh, and let me tell people, you can reach out to me at clarissewinecompany at gmail.com. If anybody is interested, not just in the wine, but any of these other things or help with, with Pinot suggestions, I have many, many friends that make some incredible Pinots. I just ordered from off of a friend, a guy named Sam Lando. I just ordered off of his mailing list right before I got on with you because he just released uh, a, new, uh, a new offering. And actually his Chardonnay from the Ritchie Vineyard is one of the best Chardonnays I've had in quite some time. So I'm like, I gotta buy some of this before he sells out. So um, I think, uh, I'm happy to help out people with, with any of these types of things. So. What a great offer. And we'll definitely take you up on that. We'll publish a list of your favorite producers. And that was hard to pick favorites, but you yeah. have been in the industry. The, you're the insider's insider. So I want to hear those suggestions for one. Sure. Um, what does Adam look forward to the most? Um, I think, so I feel, I mean, a couple of different things. Uh, certainly, personally, children uh, and seeing them and seeing what they are becoming, the, the mm -hmm. adults that they are going to become in their life, I look forward to that um, tremendously. I think, uh, you know, back when I was younger and you first have kids and all of that, people tell you, you know, the, the greatest accomplishments you ever have are going to be your children. And I was so busy making wine and stuff. I was like, I mean, they're great, but it's not like the greatest accomplishments um, you figure out after a while that that really is the legacy that will um, go on from you. It's going to outlast and, and, and live longer. So that that is um, something that I think is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, I look forward to hopefully at some point in time making another great wine. I feel like in my life, I've made three, maybe four truly great Pinots in my life. I've made really, really many, many good ones, but 95 Hirsch, uh, 99 Christian David, named after our son, but it came from the Hirsch Vineyard, 05 Pizzoni, and now under Clarice, maybe the 18 Garys. Truly great only happens through uh, these, these uh, confluence of circumstances together. And um, those years were truly great. So I look forward to having another one of those great wines one more time, at least, before I hang it up. Um, I look forward to that. And most of all, from a wine point of view, I look forward to somebody else making a Pinot Noir that is just blows me away so much. Some producer I've never heard of, some little man or woman over here that's starting up in a garage or in a small corner of a larger winery and they're making something incredible. I look forward to trying that and to get that excitement all over again of here's something new, here's something exciting that I hadn't heard of before. That's thrilling when you discover that. Wow, what a phenomenal sentiment to end our conversation and i would like to think of it as an ongoing dialogue so this is to be continued very much you have you know in so many ways 
created not just value through your wines, but the philosophy that you've practiced and put to work throughout your life experience, I think is so inspirational. And I truly thank you for being a part of this terrific community and a part of my world as I was, um, you know, growing up palatally, um, specifically to Pinot Noir. Um, I think you've um, articulated so many truths that um, I live for. So thank you very much. Very kind. Thank you for always being. I, I go to so many events and I see you at all of them. I don't know how <laughs> you manage to, to pull that off. But um, I think you provide a wealth of knowledge through your experience and going to these tastings and getting to know people. I, I really appreciate that about you. So thank you. And I can't wait for more and I can't wait to try your new wines. That's such an exciting thing to to plan for. And so this is not a goodbye. This is we'll see each other soon. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.